Welcome to the Snow Brains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains, and I drank way too much and ended up peeing in the corner at senior prom in high school. Yeah, I was that guy. The Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area. Alta averages 40 snow events every winter, with 18 of those storms bringing at least a foot of snow to Alta. This is part two of Andrew McLean, the big mountain scientist. We pick up where we left off in phase six of Andrew McLean's exotic life. So stage six of your life here that I have as I've, as I've categorized your life for you is uh, something I had no idea that you did. And, and again, this is another thing that pisses me off because every time I'm out with you <laughs> hiding, it's like, Andrew can just go and go. He's like, yeah, I'll take your clients. I'll do another run. Yeah, you go back, have some coffee. Yeah, you look tired. I'll go. And, and now I understand why because you were into ski mountaineering races. This was just part of your, your physiology. So your background of winning numerous ski mountaineering races in, this, in the 90s and 2000s blows me away because I know how difficult those races are and how intense that competition is. You won the Alaskan Pipeline Raid. You won the Randonnée Rally at Alpental, Washington twice. You won the Sudan Kuar Ski Race Extreme in Whistler. You won the Peak to Valley Ski Race in Whistler. And you won the Groundhog's Day Telemark Ski Race at Alta. What the hell, man? <laughs> Nobody knows this about you. How did, you. how did these races change the direction of your life? And, and how did it feel to win? Oh, it was great. Now, it was a, a big part of it was the early development of the sport. And I'd been over to uh, Le Grave, France, and I'd seen like a result sheet from a Rondonnet race. And I was looking through it and, you know, the times were, it was like, okay, you know, these guys climbed, I think it was like, you know, 6,000 feet of climbing and the times were like an hour and a half or something. Whoa. And I was like, really? So it kind of opened my eyes to, you know, this whole idea of racing. And so I, I brought that back and uh, with Black Diamond, we started putting on the thing called the Powder Keg, which was, you know, one of the early backcountry races. And, you know, then we started, we made it into a World Cup event, brought over a bunch of Europeans. I think the Powder Keg's been, it's been going every year. It's, um, I was involved with it for about the first five years and now uh, other people have taken it over. But you know, it was really fun at the time because you know it was just this community event you'd have you know 20 people show up and it was all very loose and there weren't trails broken and it was just community and then as it started to like catch on you know it got a lot more competitive but i've met you know a lot of really fun great fast skiers ethan pringle from uh crested butte and you know just a lot of people from jackson uh steve romeo met a lot of people through the ski mountaineering racing and then yeah i was on very heavy equipment because i was like oh you know you gotta you want to ski steep stuff you gotta have really heavy equipment and for racing you know, i started using some dina fits which you know just seemed like little pieces of jewelry you know they're mm-hmm. teeny things <laughs> but you can't take these seriously and then you know i started using them and i was like oh these things are rad and then 
you know, it just kind of went from there. You know, suddenly you start seeing that, oh, you know, 3,000 feet on this lightweight gear is just nothing. You know, you can just dust it off in an hour. And so suddenly your tours, you know, racing was one thing by itself, but then you could apply that to your touring and you could, you know, start pumping out 6,000 foot days or 9,000 foot days and, you know, just more and more vertical through this lighter gear. I can attest to that too, because I'm a late adopter. I really only started really using Genefits in the last couple of years and it is mind bending. You're, you're about twice as fast, I'd say. Yeah. It's, yeah. You'll it's, never it's yeah, no, <laughs> no. Well, I, I'm still dumb enough because I when I when, when I think I want to ski hard, I still have a heavier, my beefy setup because I think I'm tough. Yeah. But then when I when I know I just <laughs> hey, we're just out here to get you know a long distance done, or you know the conditions aren't you know it's springtime or whatever. Then I got the Dean fits and it's, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's so interesting. Did you also do a hundred mile running race? Oh uh, yeah, the Wasatch 100, which uh, kind of goes right through my backyard. So I did paste paste a friend on it one year and kind of went from checkpoint to checkpoint, saw the whole thing. And, you know, it wasn't really running. It was more just like suffering and enduring, <laughs> which is kind of my forte. So I was like, Oh, you know, I'm going to sign up for that. So I did. And I got in uh, the next year, much to my horror, you know, I'd never run a marathon or, I mean, I'd never done anything over like, I don't know, 10, 15 miles, but it was almost more like a, a horizontal expedition, you know, a lot of planning and pacing and, uh, you know, I made it to, I think, mile 75, and I was in pretty bad shape, but I was just like, you know, I'm going to finish this thing. So I finished it wow. and uh, quit running after that. <laughs> that's what kept me going was the idea of, you know, if I finish, I could, that'll, that'll be the end of it. Well, it's incredible because it, it looks like you weren't a runner. You did this 100-mile race, and you got, what I read is you got 36 out of 180 people. Yeah, not like that. That's, that's, yeah, I that's, think it was 20, 28 hours. But a lot of vertical. I think it was 22,000 feet of vertical or something. Whoa, I can't even imagine that. It, it, it's all starting to make sense now, Andrew, <laughs> your, your behavior pattern in the mountains. All right, so, so stage number seven, you were an avalanche forecaster. The list goes on. So you were an avalanche forecaster for the Utah Avalanche Center for one year in 2003 and 2004. What was that experience like, and why did you not continue with that career direction? Uh, it was fantastic. started doing a lot more uh, expeditions. And so I'd come back, you know, from a trip and be a black diamond and, you know, there, I was like, Oh yeah, by the way, now that I'm back, I've got another trip planned. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. at some point they were like, you know, you need to decide, you know, one, one thing or the other, you know, and I was like, well, okay, you know, I'm going to take a break because then the you know sponsorship was kind of taking off. And uh, there was an opening for uh, avalanche forecaster at the Utah avalanche forecast center. And uh, I applied and ended up uh, getting the job and working with Bruce Tremper, which was uh, you know great. Yeah, so I learned a lot from him, Drew Hardesty, Greg Gordon. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, it was really fun being part of the community because you're working with all of the backcountry skiing community in Salt Lake, and all the ski resorts would call in, and you know, you really I, I learned a lot about avalanche terminology and forecasting, which is much different. Like you know, when we usually go out skiing we're, we're kind of now casting we're you know going out reacting to the day but forecasting you really have to you know look at the day and then look at you know what the weather is going to be like and make a forecast like this is what it's going to be like tomorrow you have to wake up super early you had to be there at 4 a.m whoa well it sounds like that served you well obviously and, and why did you not continue that career uh it was a little bit of velvet handcuffs like you you had to be there every day 
you know, it was such a small group of people that if, you know, to go on an expedition meant that, you know, one of these people was going to have to uh, you know, cover for you the whole time. And that, that's pretty hard when you only have four people and you're waking up at you know 2.30 in the morning. If you have four people and everybody rotates, you do that, you, know, you do your field day and you're at forecasting day. But if somebody's gone, that just means you have to really double up and it, it made it a lot harder to go on trips. So forecaster or professional ski mountaineer, I, I see where your decision-making went. Uh, so, so number eight here of, of your amazing life stages I have is professional ski mountaineer. That's right. It happened right after forecasting. Yeah, I say, it kind of makes sense, right? So you touched on this before, but how did you become one of the first professional ski mountaineers? And when did this start? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't like a, a really cut and dry thing. It just, you know, slowly evolved and you know part of it was i think the north face started the, one of the first uh climbing teams so they had lynn hill greg child alex Lowe, and conrad was the uh, team manager so he Con- actually conrad anchor conrad anchor worked for the north face so they started an actual climbing team but there was no you know real skiing team but then skiing really started to take off and so some of these companies like you know north face and in my case, Mountain Hardware started looking at having uh, skiing teams. And skiing had been, you know, up to that point, it had been, you know, racing and freestyle and maybe some modeling or something like that. Backcountry was like a new thing. So when they started, the company started making backcountry-specific clothing, they started putting together, you know, backcountry athlete programs. And so I was just lucky enough to, you know, first through Black Diamond, because I was working there, you know, then through Scarpa, and then through uh, Mountain Hardware. So, uh, those those three companies kind of were the mainstay that kind of got me going. That's amazing. So, where where did professional skiing take you, and what opportunities did it afford you? It was just a blast, and still is. because you know, it was, and it's changed quite a bit. You know, a big part of what it used to be was you go on an expedition and you'd bring along a photographer. And the expedition would be paid for. And the idea was that you would, you know, take photos and test the product. And then the photos would be used for advertising. And then you would, you know, go and give slideshows and presentations. And if there was a clinic, you'd, you know, teach the clinic and, you know, do writing. So it was really kind of a package deal, speaking. And now, you know, a lot of that has been replaced with uh, social media now. So, I mean, the whole idea of like, you know, nobody does slideshows anymore. It's <laughs> you know, like a, a dying art. But, you know, that's where you kind of learn to, you know, stand up in front of people and put together a show and talk about it, develop a, a story. And you travel around, go to ski towns, talk about skiing, and meet a lot of other people and have a good time. Well, that's the first time I ever met you is, is I know you don't remember, but I think it was somewhere, I was around 24. I think it was around, you know, 2005 or so, 2006. And you gave a talk at Squaw. And, uh, and yeah. I, wa- I watched your talk and I went and harassed you later after the show and asked you questions. It was about Alaska and it totally inspired me. So I miss that. There is still, we still have some of that, but I do miss that. And it's neat to hear that's the protocol and that's how it worked. You, know, you went on these trips, you bought a photographer, you gave talks and that's how you promoted that business. And then the business obviously supported you. Which other s- ski mountaineers do you look up to? Uh, you know, Lou Dawson was a, a big mentor um alex Lowe, you know absolutely he was much more known for his you know climbing but you know he's the guy that really turned me on to the idea of combining climbing and skiing you know bringing ropes and technical gear into the backcountry you know, instead of waiting 20 years for a line to fill in he would be like oh you know let's go do it now and we'll just wrap it like, wow 
what a radical idea. You know, I never it thought is. of that. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of Greg Hill. You know, I'm a big fan of Greg Hill. Me too. Canada, you know, just super nice, genuine, incredibly strong, a great human outside of skiing. See, you know, the early French extreme skiers, Anselm Baud and, you know, Bovan, Tardeville, the, the original kind of steep extreme ski guys. I, I never met any of them, but, you know, they were obviously, their photos were kind of like, oh, you know, check that out. In, in 2010, I interviewed uh, Anselm Bo and Sylvain Sudan in Chamonix oh, yeah. for a, a project back then. Yeah. And they both were just phenomenal. And, and uh, the essence that Anselm Bo brought to the table, I mean, his just class <laughs> and the way he moved, it was like, I don't know, this like just suave cat, everything he did is very <laughs> cool. And then, then, you know, Sylvan is more like, you know, this stocky grunt guy. You can tell he's just muscling his way through things. But both of them just vibrant, you know, older gentlemen is very impressed. This is a little bit out of order, but I wanted to get to the shooting gallery, which I have as phase nine of your life. Uh, in 1998, you published the legendary guidebook, The Shooting Gallery, A Guide to Steep Skiing in the Wasatch Mountains. And this book simultaneously displays the most challenging lines in the Wasatch Mountains and is objectively hilarious and witty. I just, I, I read this book, like I told you, on the toilet so many different times. <laughs> And I just, it just makes me laugh. So just even the captions, the guy on the cover is doing the weirdest thing. And then the caption something like, you know, this is how you drop into the sliver with every limb doing a different thing. And it's just, I always thought, you know, why is this how you're supposed to do it? But then I you know, learned that the whole book is kind of joking. And it, what, what, it kind of is, right? At least to me, it just, it makes me laugh so many times. What, what drove you to write this book? Yeah, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, I just, after that friend said, oh, you know, you skied the, the three big lines in the Wasatch, it was like, oh, there are plenty more. So I started to, you know, I, I was always a rock climber. So, you know, rock climbing has ratings to it and a star system. And so it's like, oh, you know, that's, you know, I'm going to climb these things and ski them. And, you know, obviously some are better than others and I'm going to give them a, you know, a quality star rating. And some are harder than others, so I'm going to give them a, you know, a difficulty rating. I thought it was going to be originally like an eight and a half by 11, Xeroxed, folded in half and stapled. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I'd be like, here, Miles, you know, here, here it is. You know, and I just hand them out. And you know, it was never really intended to be like an actual book. And I kept thinking I was going to run out of couloirs. So it'd be like, oh, you know, I got it one more, one more, one more. All of a sudden I'd worked on it for maybe two years. And I went to, I was like, oh, okay, this is enough. You know, I'm going to publish it. So I went to fold it and staple it, but it was too big. Like I couldn't <laughs> do it. So I had to go to what's called perfect binding, which is how paperback novels are made, which meant that instead of doing, you know, 20 at a time, I had to go have them manufactured. Mm -hmm. And luckily, uh, Utah or Salt Lake just has a ton of publishing houses because of the uh, LDS church. Now Interesting. On publishing. So there was a place downtown that would publish it, but it was like, well, you have to do 4,000. I was like, oh. Was like, nah. <laughs> but that, by then, I, you know, I'd put so much time and effort into it. And, and so when I went and picked them up, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to sell 30 of these and I'm going to burn them all. And it's going to be a huge embarrassment because I talked to, uh, <laughs> You know, some other like Wolverine Press and Chalkstone Press, and they were all like, no, no, you know, nobody wants that type of book. Nobody mm -hmm. does that type of skiing. And I was like, I know, you know, I, I know. Yeah, nobody does. Can't argue. I, I get it, you know. And But, you know, I was, I was committed. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to take the plunge. And I made 
made them and, you know, and I, I take them around and, you know, stores were kind of like, nah, you know, nobody wants those, but we'll take two. And then I'd get home and there would be a message on the machine being like, yeah, we'll take two more, you know, the employees bought them. And then, wow. okay, you know, we'll take two more. We'll take one more. We'll take two more. <laughs> and it's just like, so anyway, they, they kind of, it just started catching on. And, you know, I think a, a big part of it was that, you know, people wanted to get into backcountry skiing, but at the time, backcountry skiing was really kind of an extension of cross country. You know, mm-hmm. it was like Nordic skiing on logging roads and tree hugging and tele gear and, you know, crashing. And, you know, suddenly people were just like, oh, you know, this, this is, this is the type of skiing I want to do. I want to go in the backcountry and ski steep lines. You know, I'm an expert skier at the Alta or Snowbird or wherever. And, you know, I want something that's beyond that. The style of the writing came about because I just, you know, never really expected it to be like a real book. This is going to be like, you know, it's just going to be like, here, Miles, you know, here's, here's this, you know, here's this book you can read on the toilet and get a laugh out of, you know, type of thing. <laughs> and now it's this legendary Bible of the Wasatch that you literally can't live in that area, be a backcountry skier and not have this book. How many of these do you think you've sold over the years? I don't know. You know, I haven't kept track, you know, I just, uh, I think it's maybe the third or fourth printing or something like that, you know, and it kind of wow. depends. It comes and goes. What's really caught on now is, you know, people are completing the whole series. And so I think there's like an interest because there's, I think there's 92 lines or 94 or something in there. How many have and completed it? I think it's up to about seven or eight. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, people. So. How long did it take to write the book? You know, I'd go skiing and then I'd write it up and go skiing and write it up. So I'd say all told it was two years, but, you know, it wasn't like I was working on it nonstop for two years. I'd, you know, work on it, pick on it a little bit here and pick on it a little bit there and put together some photos. And I also did all the, the layout. So I used uh, an old Adobe program called PageMaker. I don't know if it even exists anymore. So, you know, I had to learn PageMaker and then I had to, you know, figure out all the formatting and, do all of that so it was more just like a evening beer drinking project for a couple of years that you wrote this amazing legendary bible in only two years and just you know very very part-time is phenomenal and have you skied all the lines in the book i did let's see noah howell there was a second person to ski them all and it hadn't really occurred to me to like ski them all i hadn't done the <laughs> uh jo- jochetti's ribbon i'd done Ooh. all of them except for jochetti's ribbon yeah, and then when Noah mentioned he was going to ski them all, I was like, oh, I, I better I better go snag that one. <laughs> so, so you were the first. I was the first. I were the first. I felt wow. like I had I felt like I had to be, you know. If I, I was think... the author of the book, I should at least have skied them all. So. That's impressive. I will definitely not ski them all, Andrew. This is this is amazing. But I do want to ski one of these with you maybe this winter. Because you gave me a hard time. Like, oh yeah, it's cool you're skiing them in the spring, buddy, but you gotta ski them in pow. <laughs> when we talked last year, have you gotten negative feedback about exposing the secret lines of the Wasatch? Yeah, I, I did in the beginning, but you know, it was very select. It was like, you know, people were like, Oh, you know, you gave away all the secrets. It was like, well, like what? Like oh, <laughs> South face of superior. It was like, Oh, come on. It's like, it's right there. You just like mm-hmm. looking at it, you know, the Y couloir, you know, the, Wolverine Cirque. It was like, uh, you know, so I mean, these lines that uh, I didn't do any history on them, like a lot of 
climbing and skiing books have, you know, first ascent because, you know, the Wasatch, it's just people come and go. So, you know, I, I'm not really claiming to do first ascents of any of them. I wouldn't doubt if they'd all been skied at one point or another before I got there. So that, that's why there's no like history on them. There is on a few of them, like, you know, who is an early descender that, uh, you know, it's too hard. You know, the Wasatch is very different in that, you know, the Tetons are, there's a big sense of history. And when somebody skis something, you know, people know the history of the lines and they know this and they stay in the town of Jackson. And, you know, in the Wasatch, it's just Salt Lake is so big that people come and go and, you know, there's no real central meeting spot or no central repository of information. I love how it's so brief and flippant on the, on the descriptions and just comical and, and almost always discouraging you from skiing it if you think it's a, a gnarly line. I love that. And have you gotten negative feedback uh, about writing the book about the lines being too dangerous? No. Yeah, I mean, some, some people have kind of grumbled about, you know, the Northeast base of the Pfeiffer horn. That's pretty spicy. And Joe Ketty's is, you know, it's almost more of a uh, rock climbing line. You know, it's a lot of gear setting and, you know, conceivably it could be done someday without a rope. I mean, you'd have to have perfect conditions and really, really strong testosterone or whatever it would take. Right. Uh, really, really big guts. Yes. To ski <laughs> it. And, you know, the great white icicle that was, you know, we first skied that because it went up one year and we were ice climbing it and it was so filled in that it was kind of like, wow, you know, this thing is conceivably skiable. And I haven't seen it that filled in since then, but it's the same thing. I think with, you know, a really big year and the right person, I don't know, maybe someday it'll be skied, but, you know, people kind of grumble about it, but I think they, you know, they have a good time. You know, if you ski the Great White Icicle, the skiing's not great, but it's hard not to get a smile out of how ridiculous it is and what a great location you're in. For reference, that, that is pretty much a roped ski descent uh, and, and more or less, like Andrew's saying, an ice climb. Uh, yeah, another, an ice climb. An, another line you won't find me on. Um, and so <laughs> to, to, to amplify the, uh, the flippant nature of these descriptions, I, I'm going to just write a, read a couple quotes from the book that I think are phenomenal. So I love that the Shooting Gallery book begins with a disclaimer from your mom saying... Three disclaimers. <laughs> Three disclaimers. I love it. So, so this one from your mom. The fact that this is a guidebook does not mean that you, the reader, should take it seriously. Obviously, no one in the right mind would ski this stuff, and you shouldn't either. That, that's so good. And the Northeast Coir of the Pfeifferhorn. More fun than running with scissors, sticking paper clips into electrical sockets, or taping firecrackers to a cat's tail. And then, I can't say coquettes or the ribbon at, at Alta. Bring a spare pair of underwear, a likely candidate for the most outrageous inbound ski line in the U.S., and an excellent way to get to know some of the Alta Ski Patrol on a first-name basis. And then Medusa's face, like Russian roulette, more fun to watch than to play. <laughs> <laughs> that one just gets me. So, uh, so we'll move on. So another phase of your life, maybe this is throughout a lot of your life. Talk to us about your avalanche philosophy because it's different. I kind of uh, learned about avalanches or was first exposed to them in uh, the Seattle area. And, you know, they, they were, you know, maritime. So they're slow or they tend to be slow. And, you know, you'd see an avalanche and you'd be like, oh, here comes an avalanche. We better ski out of the way. And you could know, stand on the edge and watch them kind of slide by. So I kind of took that attitude to the Wasatch uh, when I first started backcountry skiing here. And, we, you know, the first year we just had, you know, endless close calls because, you know, a soft slab avalanche is much faster and much trickier than a slow 
maritime one and then you know hard slabs like colorado or you know even a step beyond that as far as you know being hard to predict and tricky i ended up having a couple of close calls uh with alex low and then you know triggering slides or going for little rides and you know kind of like it's like, wow, what was that? <laughs> yeah, it's just totally clueless. <laughs> and so, you know, I took avalanche class, you know, avalanche level one, and then, you know, level two, and then level three, and then eventually got into, you know, forecasting. So, you know, I've been, you know, pushing my education as much as I can, reading about avalanches and, you know, being involved and following the forecast. And is it true? Yeah. Some, sometimes you, you and I, I think have spoke, sometimes you won't carry a probe because you think that once you find the person with your beacon, you should just start digging. Yeah. <laughs> I know I like that's, that. that's not a very popular, uh, you know, you know, cause you know, in the early days, probes were, you know, part of the kit, you'd have a beacon and a shovel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the one avalanche, the first one fatality I was involved with, uh, we didn't have a probe. And, uh, you know, we just all started digging right away, which was good. And we ended up probing just with the ski pole, you know, just turned it over and probed. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is important to, you know, start digging as soon as possible. Um, you know, once you, once you get a good signal, you, you know, start digging in, you know, modern beacons, you know, go down to half a meter so you can get you know, really close, tell how deep they are and see where people or get an idea, um, <clears throat> you know, and a lot of people carry probes nowadays. I carry a probe when uh, I go to Antarctica or when I'm guiding, but you know, a lot of times I just ski with, uh, you know, maybe two, three people at the most, like smaller groups. And, uh, you know, if you, if you have a group of three or four, you know, then somebody can do the beacon, somebody can start digging, somebody can start probing. In those cases, I think a you know, probe is you know, a really good idea, but, uh, for a lot of the skiing I do, uh, yeah, it's just, hey, I realize it's, you know, not everybody's cup of tea, but you got to, you know, at some point you have to start making decisions, you know, are you going to bring an airbag pack? Are you going to bring a radio? Are you going to bring, you know, your cell phone? Are you going to file a, you know, a trip plan? You know, it's, and everybody has different levels of backcountry comfort. And for me, you know, the, the probe is kind of on the, the cutting edge. I'm, I'm comfortable skiing without a probe, not all the time, but, you know, more often than not, I'll ski without a probe or an airbag. I've got an airbag, but when I go out, I'll, I'll be like, well, you know, it's really dicey conditions. I'll, I'll bring my airbag pack. And then as I'm pulling it down, I'm like, well, if it's dicey conditions, why why don't I just stick to safer terrain? Because it's kind of giving me, you know, I'm the first to admit if I'm wearing it, I'm, you know, I'm Superman. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, I'll ski this. If it rips loose, I'll just pop the chute and it'll be fine. And that that's not a good way to be. So, you know, if I start to reach for the airbag pack, I I just instead change my agenda. You know, it's like, let's just tone it down and ski safer line today rather than putting on an airbag and committing to a steeper, more exposed line. I hope that's something that resonates with our listeners because I agree. I actually stopped using my airbag backpack because I think it was pushing me into more aggressive terrain and more dangerous avalanche conditions. And I've recently, I think part of, I'm getting older now and just maybe making better decisions. And so now I do use it more often now, but I agree. I feel like I reach up for the pack when I think I'm pushing it. And then you have to think maybe I should just not be pushing it. You know, there's a, there's a simpler, <laughs> there's a simpler solution here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right, I so. ski with it. Like uh, you know, we did a trip with Bill Barker to uh, Gulmarg and you know, that's kind of perfect airbag because you're taking the tram up 
and you're skiing these huge exposed lines with no hiding spots. You know, there's no trees, there's no cliffs or rocks to hide behind. You know, you're just digging pits, checking it out, and then you're committing to these 3,000 foot open slopes. And that's kind of perfect airbag scenario. You know, if you do get caught, you pop the bag and you'll hopefully float on top. But, you know, around the Wasatch lot, you know, there's, you can ski strategically, you know, you can ski off to the side or, you know, maybe not center punch stuff or stay on a ridge line or, you know, hide between islands of safety, you know, go into the trees, things like that. You know, it's another great take home is there's so many more strategies than just the things you read about in books. Mo- mo- a lot of times, a lot of it does come from experience. So I think those are those little strategies of how to manage, you know, that kind of avalanche terrain. That stuff is so valuable. Let's let's move on to another huge phase of your life, expedition skiing. And I think this has been going on for about 30 years for you. You've been on expeditions to places in the world most people would never even think of going, to Iran, to Antarctica, Svalbard, Baffin Island, Morocco, many trips to Alaska, Iceland, and lots of these trips contain first ascents. What is it about expedition skiing that calls to you? I just love the, uh, the planning and the logistics. Like, uh, you know, you think about it and you plan it out and you research it and you find a partner and you, you know, you get any permits and you, you know, you do all this work and you think of all these scenarios. How's this going to happen? What are we going to need for food? Who do we need to, you know, and then you get it all set and you kind of launch and then it just, the trips kind of play out, you know, and then you're kind of like jazz. (laughs) You're you're kind of, you're freelancing, you know, sometimes plan A works. There's a lot of times it's, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, you know, you just, you know, going all over the place, making the best of it. Plans are changing. This doesn't work. That doesn't work. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, I really like the bigger picture skiing. It, it's about skiing and you go there for the skiing, wherever it is. But in the end, it's really, you know, it's, it's a bigger adventure. It's a, a way to explore the world through skiing or, you know, using skiing as a way to explore some of the hidden parts of the world that, you know, maybe have never been explored before you know oceans have been sailed and people have gone to outer space but you know there's some little line up in alaska that's you know worth checking out could be great skiing might as well go launch a little expedition up there and you know get a group of friends and make base camp check it out it's a good excuse to go to these places and meet people and have a good time and i think that uh, you have seen the world through a lens that almost nobody has gotten to see it through you know you end up in big cities and crazy places and interesting cultures and you don't speak the language and you get these phenomenal cultural experiences that you would have never gotten and it's skiing that got you there which i think is so fascinating and a lot of times on these trips Andrew, I, I know you. you. You're going there to ski something steep, right? You're going there to ski something gnarly. What do you think? What's the gnarliest line you've skied on a ski expedition that scared you? <laughs> Boy, quite a few of them. Had uh, let's see. You know, the first one that really got me going on it was uh, Denali. And that was with Mark Holbrook. And we went to a uh, climbing slideshow about Denali. <laughs> and, and it was like, is, can you ski that thing? And they're like, oh yeah. So Mark and I just went there and we totally lucked out and ended up skiing it on our you know, first try. And so that, that one was kind of like, wow, you know, if this is, if we could ski this, then, you know, we can go anywhere and ski anything. And that, that was kind of a, a stretch of the imagination. You know, that kind of thinking led to uh, Shishapongma where uh, that's in Tibet, where uh, Alex Lowe and Dave Bridges were, killed in an avalanche but uh yeah it was uh that was definitely the first one that kind of opened my eyes to if you could ski this then 
there's just all of the volcanoes, there's you know, stuff in Russia, there's stuff in Baffin Island, there's you know, lines all over the world. Well, it's so sad about Alex and, and David and Shushkin Pomga. I, I did not say that right. Uh, but I, I love the idea that you guys went and skied Denali. And I think you skied the Messner Kuar. Is that right? And you were the first ones to ever ski that. And no, it, Yeah, we skied the, the Messner. The Messner. Yeah. Um, I think we were technically the first Americans, but it had been skied before. So you went and skied the Messner and, and that gave you the confidence. You know, if we can ski this, we can ski anything. And then, you, and then, I mean, since then you've just gone all over the world. So another big phase of your life is steep skiing, which is kind of rolled up into all this. We can do this quick, but what is it about steep skiing that makes you crazy? I really like how it's like almost a hundred percent mental. Like when I steep ski, it's, you just have to be thinking, you know, I've made millions and millions of turns in my life. I'm not going to fall on this one because you're starting at the very maximum fall, right? If you're rock climbing and you're free soloing, you each step gets more committing. But when you're steep skiing, you know, you're starting at the top. If you blow your first turn, you're going to go the whole way. So a lot of times the, you know, the first turn is the hardest one to make. And you just have to kind of, you know, you have to lean forward, which is very unnatural. You know, you don't want to lean back when you're steep skiing, you'll end up on your tails. So, you know, it's very, you have to get out over it. You have to have it in your head. You know, I can do this. I've done a million turns and you just have to kind of make the first couple of turns in autopilot. And then all of a sudden it starts sinking in. You're just like, Oh yeah, you know, this is great. I'm up, you know, I am in a crazy location making skiing turns down this thing. And this is super cool. And then, you know, you're working your way down. And then once you kind of get past the point of, you know, fearing for your life, you just start opening up and skiing down and you look back on it. And it's like, yeah, you know, there's a you know, really cool big rad line with a set of tracks in it. And, you know, the next snowstorm comes along and it's there for somebody else to do. So I, just, I like the mental aspect of it as much as anything. You know, it's just really challenging. And I used to got to believe. You got to believe that's for sure. Are you still skiing lines as steep as when you were younger? Yeah, I, I pushed it for a long time and now they have to be in perfect conditions. I think, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was willing to ski things in dicier conditions or maybe not willing. I just didn't know any better. You know, now I still like them, but I'm much more like it has to be kind of perfect. So you still have the appetite. When do you think the appetite will wane for you for the steep stuff? I don't, I don't think it ever will. <laughs> uh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. You know, it all depends. You know, steep skiing is you can find something with a really safe run out that's, you know, I don't know, 200 feet long, or you can find something that's, you know, super committing. But I'd say, you know, a lot of it just depends on, on the situation, how you're feeling, what your motivation is. It helps if you do it a lot. Like if you're just always steep skiing, you know, you come up and there's a 45, 50 degree slope, and you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, you just have a lot more confidence. But you know, if you don't do it and then you get on a steep slope, you're kind of like, whoa, this, is, this one's got some spice to it. So, you know, it helps if you do it a lot. Well, that's great advice. Get out there if, if in, in working your way into it, obviously. Yeah, yeah, work up slowly. Another stage of your life is ski guiding. You and I first met in either Antarctica or Svalbard uh, ski guiding together for ice axe expeditions, I think somewhere around 2014, which was an honor for me. And where and when did you start ski guiding? You know, it started like as part of being an athlete for, uh, you know, mountain hardware. You know, sometimes they'd be like, uh, you know, we've got some dealers. We'd like you to take the dealers out skiing. And so you'd go skiing. You know, technically you're guiding, but it was more just, you know, having lunch and having a good time. But 
I think probably with Doug, uh, because I'd been on uh, two trips to Antarctica. And then when Doug put together the uh, Ice Axe Antarctica Ski Cruise, 2009, 2008 didn't happen. 2009 was the first year. And uh, so that was really when I first started guiding, you know, and my background on that was mainly that I'd been to Antarctica and I had you know, experience uh, skiing in Antarctica, not necessarily you know, a lot of experience guiding, but it was pretty cowboy you know, back <laughs> in the early days. And, you know, then I started you know, working on my AMGA ski guide certification and, you know, just a lot of the skiing I was doing in the Wasatch, I'd you know, be out skiing and I'd just suddenly you know, be with a group of people and, you know, they'd kind of be looking at me like, what do you want to do? And I, I was kind of accidentally guiding and I just felt like I should get more serious about that. So, you know, that's when I got my, uh, you know, woofer and uh, started working on the AMGA cert and stuff like that. So that's, that's how I got into guiding. And when you refer to Doug, that's Doug Staup, the owner of Ice Axe Expeditions, where Andrew and I both work. And where has ski guiding taken you? Crazy locations. I did a, uh, you know, multi-million dollar mega yacht up in uh, Norway a couple of years ago. I did a private yacht down in Antarctica. I've been to Antarctica with you and Doug Stow probably nine times or something like that. Svalbard with you. Morocco. Yeah, yeah, all around the world. Where's your favorite place to guide? Antarctica, definitely. Me too. Me too. Yeah, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's just so, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard to put into words. Just so good. You know, the guiding in the Wasatch is really fun and it's fun to turn people on. You know, they come out, you ski powder, and you know, they're just like, wow, this is incredible. You know, is it like this all the time? It's like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but you know, Antarctica is, uh, you know, it's just, you got the wildlife and the penguins and the crossing the Drake and it's really, you know, just turbocharged guiding and you have, you know, 20, or other guides from all around the world. So there's a lot of camaraderie and you meet interesting people and it's just the ultimate trip. I agree. It's, it's, it is it's is the trip of a lifetime. We've gotten to do it multiple times and it's just every time you go there, that every little part about it just absolutely blows your mind. So another, another big piece of both of our lives and a lot of our lives in the mountains is accidents in the mountains. And you've been skiing heavy lines for 30 years in remote places and accidents have happened along the way. You've lost friends, as we talked about, and you've been very open about your challenges. I know you have a slideshow where you go through your mountain accidents, and I know that it's emotional. And, you know, what, what, what types of accidents you know, do you see out there and which ones have affected you the most? As I mentioned earlier, I've been involved, directly involved with four fatalities. The first one was an avalanche burial with Roman Lada in the Wasatch. Uh, then there was Alex Lowe and Dave Bridges in Shishpongma, uh, Tibet. And then a friend, we were climbing a uh, superior in the morning, dawn patrolling, and he fell off that and ended up dying. You know, in all of those, you know, especially the first one, I didn't know Roman very well. I just met him the day before. And the thing that really kind of came home to me was, you know, you, you go out with people in the mountains and you kind of have a relationship like a, you know, a buddy bro ski relationship, you know, pushing it in the mountains, doing fun things, but there's really a, a bigger, you know, everybody has a family and friends and you, that really comes home when you, you know, meet somebody's parents for the first time at their funeral or you meet their, you know, their wife or their kids for the first time. And, you know, just, there's nothing you can say. It's just like, I don't know why we're doing this. It just seemed like fun at the time. You know, I really 
regret it. Um, you know, all of the accidents I've been involved with, you know, I never really felt like I was directly responsible. It wasn't like I said, you know, you ski this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm afraid of this. Why don't you ski it first type of thing? You know, it was like, it, it could have been me, you know, with Alex and David. It was the luck of the draw that they were hit and I wasn't, you know, with Roman. It just was, you know, the same thing. Dan Rector, same thing. You know, I, I don't know why he tripped and I didn't. So, but it made me really think a lot more about people and climbing buddies. There's a lot more to it than just the climbing and the skiing. You know, that's what's important to us. But there are people behind the whole thing. And, you know, they've got families. And, you know, you really need to keep that in mind when you're, like, getting to a situation. The adrenaline's high and everybody's pumped up. You need to be like, okay, you know, let's, let's keep it in perspective here. Let's calm down and really be a little more analytical about this. That's all really great insight. And and thanks for sharing that. I'm so sorry that that has happened. And it's just so good to talk about it though and and tell people these things because we can all learn from it and get better from it. Roman Lata, is that the one, there's a famous picture of a guy jumping into Wolverine Cirque and they say, this guy passed away. Did you take that photograph? Yeah. You did? Really? Wow, where is that? Somewhere in Salt Lake at a restaurant or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I gave away the, uh, that was the only uh, copy of it I had. It was an old 35 millimeter slide. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't have a copy of it, but I, I would kind of like a, you know, some copy wow. of the image at some point. I haven't seen it for a long time. We made a, a large print of it and then gave that to the family and the 35 millimeter slide. That's interesting because that's what I saw. It's a large print. I want to say at a restaurant in Salt Lake, and it's it's very. I mean, it's giving me chills just thinking about. It. It's very impactful because you know that this was the last voluntarily thing this guy did with his life. You know, and you and it's captured, and that and that was the last thing. It's making me overly emotional. We'll move on. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah I've always, always felt you know a lot of the accidents I've been involved with. I'm more than happy to talk about them because I feel that. Uh, you know, they weren't done intentionally. It wasn't, there was no malicious on my part. As I mentioned, it could have been me easily. And I think it's important to talk about them so other people don't make that same mistake. I also kind of have a little bit of, you know, the combat humor. Or, <laughs> you too, and I love that about you. You know, gall- gallows humor, or, you know, the humor like doctors and ERs. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm willing to admit that you know skiing is not saving the world it's a you know kind of a fun frivolous sport and if you really don't want to get injured then the 100 percent safe thing is just not to do it but if you're going to do it i think you should kind of keep it in tongue-in-cheek perspective you know it's not uh, it's, it, it is never 100 percent safe you know even if you, you know, are skiing super mellow slopes i've had really mellow slopes rip out so it's just something that you have to kind of accept. And I, you know, personally, I kind of accept it and with a tongue-in-cheek, you know, sense of morbidity to it. Well, <laughs> and, and that's and that's therapeutic, right? It, it, laughter is a very common human reaction to terrifying, scary, sad situations. So I, I think that I, I like your attitude on that. It, it, it I think it is a, a good way, a good therapeutic. And uh, but I got to tell you how much that hits me that that you took that photograph. Because I, I think about that all the time. I went out to Utah when I was very young. I want to say like 22, we went out there. My buddy pointed it out, showed me, talked about it. Anyway, crazy. 
One other thing I wanted to talk about is the explosive growth of backcountry skiing. So backcountry skiing and riding has just gotten huge in the past few years. What have you seen out there and how do you feel about the growth? I am just totally blown away by it. Mm-hmm. It's not, not, the, not so much anger, but just, you know, in awe because, nice. you know, it's a tough sport. You got to break trail. There's a lot to learn, all the avalanche type stuff. You know, there's a lot of gear to buy. And I just always thought, you know, it's great. It's really fun. But, you know, there's just like this many people, you know, just a teeny amount of people. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, there are a lot of people getting into this. You know, it just seemed like you know, a couple of years ago, it was like, you know, peak oil. It was like, oh, we've hit peak backcountry. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just gone just way up since then. And I just never, ever would have imagined that it would reach the popularity that it has. It's just uh, phenomenal growth. You know, hard to put into words. When you show up at a parking lot in the Wasatch at you know, 6 a.m. and it's full, it's like, wow, there are a lot of people getting after it. So, but, you know, I like it. It kind of pushes me to go further and deeper and find other spots. And uh, you know, I'm really excited to see people get turned on to it. You know, I remember you know, some of my early days of skiing, you see people come back and they've only been doing it for you know a couple of weeks or a month or maybe one season. And they're just you know, totally gaga about it and you know, having fun and learning and skiing some classic lines and getting turned on to it. So I think it creates a lot of uh, great backcountry ambassadors. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's such an all encompassing experience and you really are, you know, like a little boat out on the ocean out there. So you have to take care of yourself. And, and, and also in that, in that same metaphor, you, you are really exposed. You experience nature, you experience the wilderness, you feel it all happen. You know, where obviously at a ski resort, it's much more polished and, and, and pruned for you. Um, and, and one other thing too, I wanted to hit here is, is you have been involved in conservation efforts and that really matters to you, especially in the Wasatch. Can you tell us a little bit about your conservation efforts in Utah, what you're fighting against, what you're fighting for, what your level of involvement is? I think, you know, the Wasatch, what a lot of people don't understand is how incredibly small it is. Like when I first started skiing here, I was just like, wow, you know, it's huge. But then as you start traveling around, going to, you know, Montana, Wyoming, California, you realize that, you know, Wasatch is teeny. Just mm-hmm. a little teeny spot, and there's a lot of issues, and there's a lot of pressure on it. You know, there's ski resorts, there's heli skiing, there's you know tons of private property that used to be mining claims that are all scattered around, and yet there's just more and more people coming into the backcountry every year. And I think it's important to you know realize that and save it because it could be could be gone. You know, it's it's public land that there is a misconception that public land means that it's going to be, you know, saved for the public. You know, the Forest Service, who owns the majority of the land around the Wasatch, you know, if they randomly decided to get back into mining or, you know, logging, that's public land, you know, it could be sold off. I mean, a few years ago, they were trying to sell off a big chunk to uh, put a tram in. And I think it's really important to kind of hold on to these big, chunks of land intact without you know chipping away at the edges or cutting them in half and dividing them and you know just one ski lift here because you know that one ski lift leads to another ski lift leads to another this leads to a day lodge leads to a you know an access road leads to a closure and you know in the wasatch we just don't have that much terrain so you know every little inch of the wasatch is kind of fought over and uh I think it's, it keeps it the way it is. 
Well, good for you. And it's good to really save these special places that we have left. There's, there's not a lot of them. So I'm with you on that. So the final phase, which actually has been going on for quite a while now, I, what, what year did you get married? Which time? <laughs> the, the second time. That second time. I forgot about there was a first. The, the second time. What, what, what year did you get married the second time? <laughs> see, that's, that's a trick question there. Uh, it is, yeah. It's been, uh, let's see, 2005. 2005. So you're, so you're now married with children and you, the, your wife at, at one time or still is the, the woman with the most vertical climbed and skied within 24 hours, Polly. Yeah. Uh, and you have two little girls and, uh, and by your words, two poorly behaved dogs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so 2005, your family started and how has that affected your decision-making in the mountains? Yeah, it's, it's a, as I mentioned on Colbert, I'm a slow learner. You know, what's really affected is just the spontaneity. You know, when you have a family, you know, it used to be like, oh, you know, Tetons are in great shape. Can you come up tomorrow for three days? I was like, yeah, you know, that's where you're able to ski steep lines as if you're able to kind of jump on them right away. But now, you know, I still do a lot of skiing and trips, but I, I really have to, you know, plan for them ahead of time or do, you know, just a one day here, one day there type of thing. So I kind of uh, had to tighten up my program quite a bit. And really, it was like, oh, yeah, kids, whatever, they're fine. You know, I didn't, that's the about of the amount of thought that I put into it ahead of time. <laughs> but they take a lot of time and effort. I believe that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's been great. Uh, you know, it's really fun to see them learning to ski and growing up. And uh, it's, uh, like there's this saying, it's something like the, the days, days last forever and the years fly by. Uh, it's like uh, day by day, it can be pretty tough. But when you sit back and look at the big picture, it's, uh, it's really fun to, you know, go canyoneering or climbing or skiing with the kids and see them get turned on to it and, you know, hear them complaining about what a rough day they had after you know, going to Deer Valley and eating at Stein's <laughs> and then going to a hot tub and watching a movie. And, yeah, it's just you know, it's, it's fun to uh, it's fun to see them experiencing it. Good for you and congrats on your family. I think that is such a great, I mean, just the, it feels like everything's really come full circle and, and come together for you. And, and I love that. And, and that's all I got for you today. Do you have anything else you'd like to add here at the end? Just uh, have a great time skiing with you, Miles. Look forward to it. You know, we have a lot of, a lot of great memories from Svalbard and Antarctica. And you know, I think uh, I can't remember the turns that we made together, <laughs> but I definitely remember hanging out with you. That's that, that's where the memories really really form. Drinking Fisk from Denmark, I think, with the with the yeah, clients. Yeah, I've tried to forget that. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, we we had we had some good trips together, and I'm looking forward to doing it again as soon as possible. Me too, Andrew. Always great talking to you. Always great skiing with you. Thanks so much for taking the time, and, and just yeah, thanks thanks for being here and giving us your life story. To learn more about Andrew McLean and to order his hilarious book. The Shooting Gallery, a guide to steep skiing in the Wasatch. Please visit straightshooter.com. That's S T R A I G H T C H U T E R.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Snowbrains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. This episode of the Snowbrains podcast was brought to you by Alta Ski Area. The editing of this episode was done by Robert Wilkinson. The music was created by Chad Crouch. 
I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark. Thank you for listening.